la, mi sol, mi fa, fa, mi fa, ré, fa, do, fa, si, fa, la, fa, si, la, si, sol, si, fa, si, mi, si, ré, si, sol, fa, sol, mi, sol, ré, sol, do, sol, si, sol, do, si, do, la, do, sol, do, fa, do, mi, do, la, sol, la, la, fa, mi, fa, fa, ré, do, ré, mi, do, si, do, do, si, do, ré, sol, fa, sol, la, 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 and welcome to the Left Field Show. My name's Joe Greenwood. How you all doing this week? Um, this is uh, episode two of this first series. Uh, this week will be, I'll be talking about uh, the new David Cronenberg film Maps to the Stars. Um, and I'll also be talking about Hal Ashby's 1975 film Shampoo, starring Warren Beatty, Julie Christie, and Goldie Horn. Um, and I'll also be answering some questions towards the end. So let's get straight on with it and talk about the new David Cronenberg film, Maps to the Stars. Delphine! Viens voir, ils sont arrivés! Ils s'installent sur la place. Tu sais, les gosses seront jamais prêts. Faudra les faire répéter dimanche matin. Ben non. Tu crois? Nous sommes de sœurs jumelles, nées sous le signe des gémeaux. Mi fa sol la, mi ré, ré mi fa sol 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 ré do. Toutes deux demoiselles, ayant eu des amants très tôt. Mi fa sol la, mi ré, ré mi fa sol 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 ré do. Nous fûmes toutes deux élevées par maman, qui pour nous se priva travailla vaillamment. Elle voulait de nous faire des érudites Et pour cela vendit toute sa vie des frites Nous sommes toutes données de père inconnu Cela ne se voit pas mais quand nous sommes nus David Cronenberg has always been a filmmaker interested in analysis He likes to look at his characters from a slightly disconnected point of view and kind of show their story and character traits in a very matter-of-fact way. Uh, and here in his new film, Maps to the Stars, this works tremendously. Cronenberg's film, which is based off Bruce Wagner's uh, adaptation of his own novel, uh, is set in a hyper-stylized cesspool version of Hollywood, which in truth, isn't that far away from the real version of Hollywood. We follow Agatha, as played by Mia Vasakowska, uh, a scarred and burned young girl making her way into Tinseltown and to work her way up. Up to where is anyone's guess. She befriends Julianne Moore's kind of Lindsay Lohan-esque, burnt-out 40-year-old actress who's still trading off the the name of her deceased mother, who was a sort of Marilyn Monroe-type actress back in the day, um, so much so that she's actually trying to play her own mother in a biopic of a movie, uh, in a biopic about her. Add to that uh, John Cusack's self-help guru uh, and his wife, as played by Olivia Williams, and, his, and their son, a teen idol child actor, as well as Robert Pattinson's frankly desperate uh, limousine driver trying to make his way in the business, you have classic Cronenberg characters. These are people who 
have a cancer of some sort. You know, in Crash, it was the cancer of being attracted to wounds and being attracted to absolute pain and agony and destruction. Whereas here, it's the cancer of wanting to be famous and wanting to be loved. Cronenberg treats Hollywood almost as a petri dish. These are sort of molecules of grime to be analysed rather than watched and enjoyed. Um, he executes this really in quite an interesting way. There's a fantastic scene where John Cusack's self-help guru is with Julian Moore and he has this therapy technique where he lies down and he's sort of like a massaging thing and he has a talk out her issue. And the, you have this room which is sort of like a there's nothing in there really, it's kind of like a yoga room, like a meditation room. And there's a whole like wall which is just a, a window essentially into a garden. But what Cronenberg does is to give it a slightly off-kilter feel, uh, he green screens in the background. It's a very subtle thing uh, that he does. And he does this and it creates this sort of slightly, what's the word, I'm, kind of off feeling to the to the scene it's something which is actually frankly unnecessary because Hollywood probably has a lot of well I know it has a lot of places where you could film and use the natural background quite nicely but here he does this to throw you off in a way that is sort of affects your subconscious it looks real but you know it's fake as you know with any movie ever <laughs> as you know with it looks real but you know it's fake. This sort of ties into this theory of vulgar auteurism, which kind of comes into this film quite a lot. There are some ugly uses of CGI, and, you know, there are uh, some quite ugly shots in there, but it's, it does sort of add to that Cronenberg feel that he's so very good at. Um... You know, Cosmopolis's previous film, which I wasn't a huge fan of, uh, I found it to be just far too cold. I mean, you know, a cold David Cronenberg film is a is a standard thing, but for me it was just too much. And I'm not a huge fan of the Don DeLillo book anyway. I, 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 I don't know, it feels like DeLillo going through the paces. What is a Don DeLillo book? He sort of, And it felt like he was doing an impression of himself. Um, in that, there's a really clever thing that they do is because the whole film is set really within this limo, is that there is no sound. There's no ambient sound. You don't hear the outside world. So, and of course, it's a set as well. So there's this slightly, obviously, green screened in backgrounds, which, yeah, again, creates this odd feeling that you're not in a real world place. Um, it's a very Cronenberg place, which is normally quite a disgusting, vile world, which is, it kind of turns you on with how disgusting it is. Not only is Cronenberg in his element here, but also the performances are as well. Julianne Moore is gigantic in this film, uh, to appropriate sports terms, she's in beast mode here. It's... Uh, and a, a staggering performance. There's a moment where she gets a phone call that she didn't get a part 
and as she's meditating, she, you know, she's meditating and she's getting this message on her phone. And as soon as the message ends, she picks up and slams it down and begins to scream, just laying it all out. And it's, she's still, she's not making a noise, but she's still screaming. It's this intense feeling. And then she gets a call later on, minutes later, really, in the film, that the, the actor, the actress that's got the part is unable to do it now. And that, well, singing to herself and to her, um, to her assistant, as played by Mia Vasakowska, who is very eerie and very, very, she, she plays sort of, uh, the archetypal Cronenberg female lead. She's very, um, very much selling her body in a way. She's, she, her face is scarred in this, but it's also her, how she walks and how she sort of inhibits, um, and how she inhabits the room. You know, she sits in this slightly leaning forward fashion, slightly, you can feel that her hands are by her side, sort of pushing down on the chair a little bit, to sort of make her feel more secure. She's, it's, she never looks quite comfortable in whatever setting she's in. Uh, also add in uh, Olivia Williams's rancid and awful mother character to her son. Uh, she plays the agent's mother of, um, what's his name? Uh, Evan Bird, who plays this child actor star who you can tell is the product of his parents, you know, the self-help guru and then the slightly maniacal agent who's having to cash in on their child's talent of some sort. Although whatever his talent is, it's frankly not really there to see. And not only are the women giving great performances, the men are as well. Uh, John Cusack is, whilst you get the feeling that his heart is in the right place in some scenes, it's in the very next scene he can be so, what's the word I'm looking for? He can be that cliched self-help guru. The one that always comes to mind is Frank T.J. Mackey in Magnolia. It's played by Tom Cruise, who's this gushing bravado all the time. And with this, he's not that all the time. He's He is a father at times. But you kind of get the feeling that that's the performance, whereas the self-help guru is the actual real-life him. Which is an ugly, ugly thing. Uh, also, Robert Pattinson continues to do great work in this, playing Jerome, a limousine driver, trying to become an actor, writing a script as well, like pretty much every limousine, <laughs> lim limousine driver or waiter in Hollywood. He's reeks of desperation. He's another face in the crowds, um, which is really well shown in the bit where he actually finally gets a part as a, I think he has something like two or three lines supposedly in this sort of Battlestar Galactica type show, but he's done up like everyone else, really. He's, it's not a star making role, not the one that he's yearning for. And he even says so as such, shrugging off that it is, well, you know, it's work. I think to look at Maps to the Stars as a film might be, almost sort of doing it an injustice. It's very much a, 
a science experiment. And it's an absolutely scathing satire as well. And not done so in a sort of inside-knowing way. Cronenberg is the perpetual outsider. He, this is the first film he shot in America. I mean, it's not the first film that's set in America, of course. He shoots most of his films in Toronto and, of course, Eastern Promises in London. But you know that this is a guy who just has no time for this place or for this industry. You know, he's flirted with some studio projects, famously Total Recall, before Paul Verhoeven did it. But this is very much an outsider's film of an insider territory. And unlike other films, where it's kind of a sort of patting yourself on the back, hey, you know, we can make fun of ourselves. This is a real, real takedown of Hollywood ideals. This sort of ugly world of vanity and image. And like most Cronenberg films, it's about skin. Skin which is scarred and burnt, like Vasikowska's character, or just ageing, like Julianne Moore's, or fresh and new, like Robert Pattinson's. And whereas Hollywood films celebrate the young, fresh and new, Cronenberg kind of condemns it. This is something that you don't really want to get into, he's, he's telling Jerome. This is a world that you don't want to be in. I've tried, and I got out of there as quickly as I can, and you can too. He's showing Hollywood suicide, and he's the one sort of writing the note, if you will. It's over, I haven't really got much more to fight for. What is there to fight for, even? And in truth, there isn't a whole lot to fight for. <laughs> Maps to the Stars is an outsider's look at the inside. Uh, Hal Ashby's 1975 film Shampoo is very much an insider's tale, uh, working off a script from Robert from Robert Town. The two of them at the time, at the peak of their powers, Town at the time had, the previous year had had Chinatown, The Parallax View, and the year before The Last Detail come out. Hal Ashby as well was going through an incredible run starting in 1970 with his debut film, film The Landlord, and following up with Harold and Maud, then The Last Detail, Shampoo, Bound for Glory, Coming Home, and then Being There in 1979. Also add to that, the, uh, Warren Beatty, the biggest actor in the world at that time, pro probably the biggest actor in the world at that time, and his then-girlfriend Julie Christie, as well as Goldie Hawn. You have... Frankly, a perfect insider Hollywood cast. But 1970s Hollywood was different from Hollywood now. This was just about the time Jaws was about to come out and slightly ruin it, so Shampoo really got in 
just in the nick of time to be a part of that golden age of Hollywood cinema. Released in 1975, but set in 1968 on the eve of Nixon's re-election to presidency, uh, Warren Beatty's lives the classical Hollywood bachelor lifestyle. Goes around giving women immense pleasure, rides his motorbike around, tries to make his way in the world by setting up his own business, live the American dream as such, kind of like how Nixon is, the immigrant tale to presidency. But what marks Shampoo out as something more than just Hollywood loving is that it's actually an immensely sad film. This is frankly a husk of a man. He's not really fulfilled. He thinks that this is what he wants. He thinks that this is going to give him pleasure, giving other people pleasure, but it doesn't. He's frankly at times broken. The character it kind of most reminded me of was um, Michael Fassbender's character in Shane, the sex addict, New York high flyer. Thing about this, thing about this film is the quite sharp tonal shifts. You have the quite typical 70s Hollywood setup of a guy and two girls trying to juggle the two, you know, within this hippie free love lifestyle. And then you have the quite sharp tonal shifts to the 70s melancholy, which hangs over many of the era's films. And then also some kind of cartoonish slapstick comedy bits, which actually work quite nicely. One bit in particular where they go to um, a party for people who donated to Nixon's campaign, where Julie Christie tries to get as drunk as quickly as possible, and it's Warren Beatty's job to try and stop her from doing so. I think what attracted me to link Maps of the Stars and Shampoo together was it's quite an obvious one, which is the ending of this film. It's Warren Beatty alone, watching in the distance as a potential great love just drives off into the distance. And then on the soundtrack, up pipes, the Beach Boys. Wouldn't it be nice, they say. It would be nice, you would think. Things do seem to be coming together. The business, still young, still good-looking. Women still fawn after him. But it's not really what he wants. Much in the same way in Cronenberg's film, it's not really what they want. They think fame will fill that hole that's sort of gaping inside them, the wound as such. And same here in, Ash in uh, Hal Ashby's film. They think being in this environment, living this life will fill them, but in fact all it has really done is given them pain. And I think that's ultimately what, great, what makes a great Hollywood satire. It has to be about pain, because that's what it takes to get there. That's what it takes to reach those career goals. And then when you get there, you start to think, was it all really worth it? Perhaps it would have been a bit nicer for me if I hadn't bothered. Perhaps if I'd just gone on my bike and driven off 
into the sunset, if you will. Tried something else. But these characters won't ever know that because they're addicted to the drug of Hollywood. Even though they're not outsiders as such. They're not really on the inside. They're kind of in this corridor of uncertainty. Wanting to get higher up to the point where other people are wanting to please them. But in truth, they'll never really get there. Sure, people will want to be with them. And make their lives easier. And try and do to them what they did to others. But the pain it took to get there really wasn't worth it. Lui, fade, insignifiant. J'aimerais rencontrer ce peintre. Ah, dommage, il vient de quitter Rochefort. Il est à Paris pour quelque temps. Mais c'est absolument pas le genre de type qu'il te faut. Mais... Mais que sais-tu de moi, toi qui parles si bien, toi qui dis me connaître et pourtant ne sais rien, 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 rien. Que sais-tu de mes rêves et de quoi ils sont faits Si tu les connaissais, tu serais stupéfait. Tu ne sauras jamais. Tu sais bien que je sais pourquoi me contredire. Tu ne sauras jamais pourquoi j'aime sourire, rire, 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 rire. Tu ne sauras jamais pourquoi j'aime danser, pourquoi j'aime passer mon temps à rêvasser. Pour toi, je ne suis rien qu'une poupée de plus. Je me demande... Okay. Let's go on to listener questions. Ah, great. Favorite part of this. Favorite, favorite part of this. Uh, let's see what we got here. This, uh, this one got sent into my Ask FM. Uh, I think post-CGI filmmaking needs some informal rules. I was thinking something like no shots that would be impossible or impractical if everything portrayed on screen was real. Opinions. Uh, yeah, actually that is kind of a, an informal rule. Um, at least for good filmmakers, I, uh, I know that's to be the case. Christopher Nolan talks about that quite a lot uh, when shooting sort of action scenes for his movies. Something like Inception, the camera is never really doing anything too unnatural. And it's kind of inhibiting the space in a normal, normal in quotation marks, uh, way. Um, I think what also helps with that is that he does a lot of practical effects. Uh, he uses a lot of model miniatures and stuff, um, I noticed. And uh, he tends not to use, tries to avoid using CGI at all costs. But yeah, I, I agree with that. Because uh, I saw the trailer for that um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which looks dog shit. And um, I'm, I'm not going to see it, uh, by the way. So don't expect a review. Um, why would you want a review from me about that? Um, and there was just this bizarre looking shot where one of them was flying down like this, like, side of a mountain, I think it was, and went, like, shell first into, like, this tank, I think. And just, like, the way the camera sort of, like, zoomed in and then zoomed back out in slow motion, back into normal speed, sped back up, it just looked awful. It just looked absolutely horrendous. Um, and so it's kind of that type of thing that really needs rules. I think also what comes from that is that you get a lot of directors who, when they're using um, CGI, um, CGI heavy films, quite a lot of them come from a sort of commercial background. Like the guy who did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, he did that Battle Los Angeles 
the sequel to Clash of the Titans. So, you know, we're dealing with a great filmmaker here. Uh, what's this? Jonathan Liebes Liebesman, I think that's his, his name. But he comes from commercials. And commercials is known, you know, you have to make something showy. You have to make something glamorous. So if you're so used to doing that and you apply it to film narrative, it doesn't quite congeal, whereas someone like Christopher Nolan came from a low-budget background, you know. His first film following, they kind of shot it only on weekends when they had the time, and then, of course, he did Memento and Insomnia and so on and so forth. But he comes from a proper narrative background. Um, so I think that's kind of the issue. I think, really, the only thing you can do is just have really good filmmakers work on your films. That's the only way you can have that happen. Um, which, to their credit, Hollywood tried to do. I know that David Fincher met over that new Star Wars film, which I think would have been cool, but... David Fincher doing a Star Wars film, I would have been so disappointed. I want to see David Fincher do a David Fincher film. Just, you know, I'm fine with J.J. Abrams doing that. That seems to be something he's good at, to a certain degree. Um, you know, I liked... I think he's a, a strong visual filmmaker when it comes to that popcorn thing. I want to see Fincher do something that's him, you know, something that's not really within that corporate structure. Anyway, I'm going off on something totally different there. Let's let's move on to something else now. Uh, just like last week as well, I'm going to do a question from the AV Club Q&A, as suggested by Jack McEnroe. Um, this week's one, which movie scenes scare you the most? Oh, um, the ones that scare me the most there's um, a scene in Repulsion which was the I think it was the first dream sequence dream time I don't know really how to describe those scenes but there's a scene in Repulsion where the guy comes out from behind the closet and it's just, it, like, I remember the first time seeing that film, I was in the first year at uni, and I went by myself to the BFI, it was in NFT1, and it was showing on, I think it was like a Thursday at like four in the afternoon, I went to see it, and it was this beautiful 35mm print, like the print was pristine, and you know, that's great, particularly when it's like a black and white film, and I had, you know, I knew it was Polanski, uh, and I just hadn't seen it, um, you know, I'd seen Rosemary's Baby at that point, and I'd seen, uh, what was on with Pierce Brosnan, um, The Ghost Writer. I'd seen that, and I'd seen, like, a couple others, but I hadn't seen Repulsion. So I kind of knew it would be a bit of a freaky movie, but I didn't realise how much it would fucking shake me to my core. But that first scene where the guy comes out from behind the, the wardrobe, it was just, it just totally shocked me. I had no, because I had no idea about what the film was. So, and then seeing it in the cinema for the first time, not knowing what it was, it was quite an experience. And frankly, in fact, if you haven't seen it and I've told you that little bit about it, I think I've kind of ruined it for you because my experience of it was perfect in that I knew really nothing about it. Apart from it was Polanski and it had Catherine Deneuve in it who, from that era, I had a crush on, so, you know, got a, yeah, so that, um, pr 
pretty much all of Inland Empire scared me. Just because the atmosphere was just so heavy. So, so heavy. Um, that the scene in Mulholland Drive behind uh, Winkies, the homeless man, that was that was really unpleasant. Um, the whole middle of House of the Devil, the Ty West movie, which follows um, college girl babysitting in this house, basically. And that's it. The whole movie, this freaky house. Um, the whole little sequence is just her being in the house, not really doing anything. And the camera just moves so slowly. Just oh, it's agonising at times watching it. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was... That, that's a good one. What's, what films really scared me? I'm trying to think of like a non-horror film that really scared me or freaked me out. Um, what was that Ryan Reynolds film? Um, it was called Buried? That film, the ending of that was fucking horrifying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd say Buried, that was, that was a good one. Um... The uh, scene with the bath in La Diabolique, that was a, that's a good one. The first um, kill in Dario Argento's Suspiria, that's a good one as well. That really scared me actually because I hadn't, that was the first time seeing that, was, that was another experience seeing that on in the cinema. I think it was, that was the Rio that I saw that. That was quite an, that was quite an experience. Um, the only time I've ever had a really bad reaction to a film, uh, I had a panic attack when I saw Gomorra in the cinema, the Matteo Goroni film. This was during uh, when I'd come up to London to see my dad, and we'd go see like four movies in a weekend. No, at times we. I don't know how many movies. We'd see like a lot of movies in a weekend and fit in a load of stuff. And we normally like the type of films like slightly more esoteric films, if you will. Um, And I saw Gomorrah and just the atmosphere in that film was so heavy and I was just so invested in it and characters would just get shot off camera in the scene and the camera would just whip around. Like people would get shot just off camera or just like out of nowhere and people would get killed off in that film to the point where you had no idea who was going to make it to the end and just that investment and this atmosphere of dread like I started to sort of stop being able to, <laughs> to breathe in the cinema which was shows how um, effective that film was uh, so yeah that there's also a scene I'm not going to really give it away but there's a scene in um, uh, in Michael Haneke's Hidden uh, where the camera is set up it's just just a long really long scene just one camera set up the camera doesn't move slightly in the slightest it doesn't do anything it's just two characters having a scene and the character does something which was so shocking to me I've never seen anything like it in a film um, just that was an incredible one. And then also 
uh, I think it's called The Pale Man in Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth. The, um, when it puts the eyes in and then it moves after that, the girl in that, that really, really freaked me out. Really freaked my nut out at that scene. So yeah, those, those are the scenes that really, those are the movie scenes that really, really scared me. Comment as-tu deviné? Le mon petit chou, c'est simple. Tu as toujours cet air-là lorsque tu penses à l'homme de ta vie. Je ne sais rien de lui et pourtant je le vois. Son nom m'a familier et je connais sa voix. Souvent dans mon sommeil, je croise son visage. Son regard et l'amour ne font plus qu'une image. Il a cette beauté des hommes romantiques Du divin Raphaël, le talent imité Une philosophie d'esprit démocratique Okay, um, so thank you for listening to this week's Left Field Chair. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, yeah, that's episode two done. Um, next week... Episode three. Every third episode, I've decided I'm going to do something a bit different. I'm not going to do a review. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do an overview, of something of a genre or of a filmmaker. And next week, I'm going to be looking at the work of Paul Schrader, who, in my mind, is an absolute king when it comes to filmmaking. Um, so I recommend, if you want to just look at some of his films, I won't spoil any of his films. If uh, you don't uh, watch any of his films, so you can still listen to it. And then after that, the week after, uh, it'll be David Finch's Gone Girl. And uh, the other film I'll be talking about is the uh, Maurice Pialet. I don't know how you say his surname. Uh, his film, uh, We Won't Grow Old Together. Which, having read the book of Gone Girl, is quite appropriate, I find. Uh, so, Yes. That was this week's Left Field Show. You can uh, listen to us at holdfastnetwork.com as well as a couple other podcasts as produced by Jack McEnroy. Uh, my name's Joe Greenwood. You can follow me at, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the piss off. You can send questions in for the Left Field Show uh, at my Ask FM, which is askfm forward slash the piss off. Uh, and yeah, I hope you join me next week where I'll be talking about Paul Schrader. Uh, the music for this week's episode came from the Jack Demi musical uh, La Demoiselle de Rochefort, um, and which I recommend you checking out. That's in my personal top ten all-time favourites. Uh, so yeah, I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope to see you next week. C'est vous, Andy Oui, c'est moi. Où avez-vous trouvé cette partition Dans la rue. Je l'ai cherchée partout. Moi aussi, je vous ai cherché partout. <rire>